Hopefully the mic is working. Is the mic working? The mic is working, because I can't hear it working. But if you can hear it working, that's the main thing. I promise I will go for no more than two hours, um, since we've already had a quick morning this morning. And um, right back, right back at you, right back at you. I mean, when we, uh, when we met Eva up in Switzerland, and we just felt the same way. Oh, this wonderful person. And here we're going to Oxford, and we've met this person, and it's been a, just a delightful uh, uh, blessing of a friendship ever since. Uh, and I'll tell you what, for a little group, guys, you make a lot of noise. <laughs> and can I suggest, symbolically, that that is a reflection of who you are as a church and as a ministry, that you are punching way above your weight. I mean, you are a well that is overflowing to a much bigger region than what you would look at when you look at a group of 50 or whatever it might be, 90 people. So bless you. Bless you for being who you are and for stepping out in faith, heading off to Malaysia, heading off to all parts of the world, heading off to Sri Lanka. Bless you for who you are. It's been great to hear so many testimonies of what God does as we step out in faith, as we work, uh, as we seek him, as we follow him. If I was to have a coffee with you, and sit down, and after a little while, you and I were to get to know each other a little bit, and I was to pry into your soul, as I tend to do with people. Be careful if you ever have a coffee with me, I'll start asking you deep and meaningful questions. <laughs> and if I was to pry into your soul, peel back some of the layers, I may well also find as much as I've, I'm sure that you've experienced God's goodness and God's favour and God's blessing and God's miracles. There may well also be some disappointments in there as well, Right? There may also be some broken dreams as much as there's been some fulfilled dreams. Let's do some other hand movements. Hold out your left hand. Over the next half an hour that I speak, when it comes to mind, drop into that left hand a fulfilled dream. A dream that's been given to you that you are just so grateful for. Maybe you wanted to get married and you got married, you had a family, you had a Maybe a career, might be a dream, might be a wonderful, successful mission trip, whatever it might be. Drop that into your left hand. Hold out your right hand. Over the next half hour, as it comes to mind, drop into that right hand an unfulfilled, or you may even call it now a broken dream. It might be that you wanted to get married and you haven't, or you wanted to have the family and you didn't, or you had the dream career and you lost it, or you never had the dream career, or nobody's downloading your music of iTunes, whatever it might be. <laughs> Drop it into that right hand and we'll kind of return to that at the end. So Lord, speak to us. Your servants are listening. We long to hear from you this morning and we long to hear you speak into our lives at this particular moment. Recalibrate us into the shape of Jesus. Amen. Amen. By the time we reach our 20s, most of us have a dream. And it's one of those amazing things that keeps us and propels us forward. And those dreams may well have started from childhood. In fact, if I was to speak to your mum... She'd probably open up the bottom drawer and pull out all these little drawings from you as a child that you did, which maybe showed that you wanted to be a racing car driver or maybe you wanted to be a mother or whatever it might be. And so our dreams inspire our drawings as a child. And then our dreams inspire our teenage years. How many stayed awake at night sometimes thinking about all the things that you could do? I stayed awake at night going, oh, all the possibilities as a child. And then in the 20s, maybe our dreams start to influence the decisions we make, maybe the courses that we take at uni, if we, if we even go to uni, maybe the dream's taking us elsewhere. And by the time we reach our 30s, certainly by the time we reach our 40s, we've had an opportunity to see some of those dreams come to life, or perhaps to have seen some of them die. 
Uh, I will never forget the day when Meryn, who's here with me today, sometimes she can't make it, there she is. We're kind of a little bit squished because I've given the guys the wrong file, but that's all right. You know, we're a little bit taller than that. Um, but sadly, I'm getting as wide. So, <laughs> year 2000, Meryn walks into the kitchen and she says to me, honey, I think it's time. And I, as a typical male, say, time for what? And she says, time we started a family. And I said, what, right now, this very moment? Fantastic, <laughs> let's go. And it was time. We'd been married five years. We were in a stable position. We weren't moving around from city to city like we had been before. The time was right. And as any couple who makes that decision knows, from that point on, every 28 days, you're looking for signs of success, right? And for a lot of couples, there is expectation in that first month. And it's very common for then there to be disappointment. That's common, right? Expectation. Disappointment, maybe two or three months, and then expectation, excitement. Well, for us, the pattern went expectation, disappointment. Expectation, disappointment. Expectation, disappointment, expectation, disappointment, expectation, disappointment. After nine months, we went and got some tests done. And this, those tests revealed that there was a problem on my side, and that without either a divine miracle or some sort of technological assistance, our dreamt of child would be hard to have. From that moment, as an infertile couple, what then starts to kind of come into play is like a pendulum swing of emotions. You swing one way and you swing the other way. And when you're up this end, you're thinking about what life as a childless couple might look like. And you're starting to think about all the positive aspects of that. And you think, well, we won't be tied down to schooling and those kinds of things, so we've got a lot more freedom to travel. We've got a lot more disposable income. Isn't that right, parents? <laughs> we can sit in a cafe on a Saturday morning and drink latte after latte and read page after page of the paper. Mums and dads, are you not feeling a little bit jealous right now? But then it doesn't take long for the pendulum to swing the other way. And you start thinking about that desire and start feeling that maternal, paternal desire for a, for a child, for a little us. So that starts swinging into effect for us. And when we're up this end of the pendulum, we try all sorts of things. Uh, we try special diets. If you want to make money, start a new diet. There's lots of diets out there. So we tried special diets. We tried special supplements at one stage. Our dining room table was filled with all sorts of little bottles with pills and potions that I was taking and Marin was taking and everything to increase the chances. We try healing prayer. We believe in a God of miracles, right? Many, many times we had healing prayer. And I remember this one particular time in uh, the year 2003 when a group of people gathered in a lounge room to pray for us, to pray particularly for me, the problems on my side. And as they gather around and they start to pray, it's as if God walks into the room. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I just burst into tears. Uh, Marilyn and I had been married quite a few years by that stage. She had never seen me cry because I'm a man. <laughs> <coughs> and men don't cry. But I, cr I cried this night. Tears coming from I don't know where. And they kept on coming. And I walked out of that pram hitting exhausted. <laughs> but also it felt like something had been freed, released, 
healed. And so for the next 28 days, there was expectation, followed by disappointment. In 2006, we tried our first round of IVF treatment, in vitro fertilization, something that we didn't undertake lightly. I wrestled with the ethics of it from a Christian perspective for probably a couple of years, trying to work out what's a good way to do this if we should use it at all. Just the fact that there is a tool available to us, friends, doesn't mean that we should run ahead and use it. As Christians, we are called to sift it. Are we, is, this a, is this all right? And particularly for us, there was that aspect of, is any life lost through this process? Tough one. Wrestled that through. Other people come out at different things, but we worked out a way that we could feel right to go ahead with that. 2006, try our first round. Family and friends are praying for us right around the nation of Australia. And there is expectation. There is expectation. There is expectation. Disappointment. In 2007, some friends come round for lunch and they place into Maren's arms their newborn baby boy. <laughs> and Maren's holding the child and she's gooing and garring and all the right things that you're supposed to do when you're holding somebody else's child, like say, oh, what a beautiful child, which sometimes is a lie, but anyway. Um, <laughs> she's doing all the right things and I'm looking at her thinking, uh, okay, we've made some progress. You know, she's not kind of dropping the child and running out and screaming mess or anything like that. Um, the people go home and I look around the house and I can't find Marin. I finally find her in our bedroom and there she is sitting on the bed surrounded by a sea of used tissues. And she looks up at me and she says, do you think we should try adoption? 2008, the social worker gets up from the last interview that she has with us to work out whether we are suitable people to look after somebody else's biological child. It's been an eight-month assessment process. Final night, she gets up, she leaves, she goes to uh, exit through the front door and she turns around and she says, I know I shouldn't say this. I know I should be professional and keep my feelings to myself because I'm a social worker, but I'm going to say this anyway. You're a very attractive couple. I don't think it's going to take you long until you get placed with a child. Just wait for the phone call. So we waited for the phone call. One week passes. Two weeks. Three weeks pass. It's not going to happen this fast. We've just got to be patient. Two months pass. No phone call. Three months pass. Four. Six months pass. And no phone call. Eight months pass. And no phone call. 12 months, 14 months, 16 months. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. 18 months, 20 months. By that stage, Maren's heart was sick. She comes to me with tears in her eyes and she says, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't live in this space anymore, waiting for the phone call to come, never knowing where it's going to be now or whether it's not coming at all. Couldn't find out any information from the Department of Family Services in Australia. They're not allowed to give you information. Was it the fact that there were no children available or was it the fact that we just didn't look good for the couples who were putting their children up? We didn't know. We just didn't know. But Maren said, I can't handle this anymore. Living in this psychological state, can we, can we let's do IVF again. We then found out you couldn't do both. You either kept on going with adoption or you let go of three years, almost three years of investment in that to do IVF. 
prayed a lot about it, we choose, chose to go through the IVF again. And we said, right, we're going to do a whole heap of rounds this time. We're going to do as much as it takes to actually make this work. Comes time for the first embryo to be transferred. As you may well know, the IVF process is quite a traumatic one. If you know or have gone through it yourself or you know of somebody who has, it's quite a traumatic one. So it was. Um, but it came time for that first embryo to be transferred. And it, by this stage, I already feel like I am the problem, not just biologically, but spiritually. And I think, you know what, Sheridan, maybe you just have not had enough faith to be healed. Maybe this is the whole, maybe you are holding your wife back from having what she so desperately wants because you have not been strong enough or faithful enough. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe the prosperity preachers are right, and instead of asking Father God for something, you should just command a blessing. Instead of requesting, maybe you should just demand it. So I thought, well, nothing else has worked. So it came time for the first embryo to be transferred, and I said, okay, God, well, I'm not going to ask for one. I'm just going to expect a child. I stand in faith. I'm just going to expect that this is going to work out to be a viable pregnancy. In Jesus' name, amen. Expectation, expectation, expectation. Disappointment. Next embryo comes and is transferred. You know that wonderful verse in Luke? I love praying for it when we're praying for healing for people. Lord, just say the word and your servant will be healed. I love that verse because it keeps the faith thing in perspective. It's saying, Lord, you say the word, that's our faith, you say the word, and it will happen. But you're the one who says the word. Lord, say the word, and your servants will be healed. Expectation, expectation, expectation. Disappointment. Another embryo is transferred, another, another. By 2010, 10 years after that original conversation in the kitchen, We've got our final embryo left, and we've already decided that's it. After this, we're moving on. There's no more IVF. We're not going back to adoption. We're not going to fostering. We have to move on with our lives. We've been on hold for a decade, and we feel like we've run this race to the end. It's transferred. We get a phone call from Emily at the IVF clinic. And she says, it's looking good. And Merrin says, define the word good. <laughs> are we talking, it's looking good? Or are we talking, it's looking good? Which one is it? Which one? And Emily said, all of your hormone levels are exactly where we'd expect them to be right now for a pregnancy. Can you imagine the jubilation that erupted? amongst our family and our friends. My mother squealed. Apparently, that's what women do when they're going to be grandmothers. They squeal. My mother squealed. Is that true? That's a gross generalization, isn't it? Sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I do. Oh, OK, good. You're on my side. Fantastic. Mum squeals. Dad gives the voisey victory laugh, I call it, which is kind of his. I can't do it. But anyway, he gives the voisey victory laugh. Uh, we have friends texting us from shopping centers in tears, saying we can't believe it. It's come true after 10 years of waiting. Finally, you're going to have a child. And at the 11th hour, isn't that just like God to come through just like that? Isn't that just like God? And we jump into our car. We're living in Sydney at the time. There's a 12-hour drive up to Brisbane where our families are to have Christmas. We make the drive up there on Christmas Eve. Marin gets another phone call. It's Emily from the IVF clinic with the latest round of blood tests. And she says, I'm so sorry. 
because the drugs had helped to create a gestational sac and there was no body in the sac. And with that, Marin put her phone down. She walked into the room we were staying, curled up in a fetal position. And that's where our 10-year dream of having a child ended. What's in the right hand? Maybe you've wanted a child. Maybe you've wanted a second child. Exactly the same grief, by the way. A lot of people come up to us after hearing this story and they say, oh, we feel so bad because we've had one child and we've always felt bad that we couldn't have a sex. It's exactly the same grief. Maybe you've wanted to be married and you haven't. Mr. Wright hasn't come along. Mrs. Wright hasn't come along. Maybe it's the career. Maybe you had the career and you lost it. We jumped into our car because we didn't feel like celebrating Christmas that year. So on Christmas Eve, <laughs> we jumped into the car, started doing the 12-hour trip back to Sydney. We stopped off at a little place called Coffs Harbour halfway. We uh, found one place that had a room free. <laughs> there was no room at the inn for lots of other <laughs> places. We found the one room free. Walked in, dropped our bags on the floor. Merrin collapsed in the bed in tears. I pulled out my journal and I wrote these words, can remember it off by heart. Lord, this is cruel, leaving us in this wilderness. We've walked around for years, tired, thirsty, and alone. One minute, we've glimpsed the promised land, and the next moment, you've barred us from entering it. I hope it's okay that I can be honest with you this morning, because what I've learnt, one of the things I've learnt about this is that it's okay to be honest with God. It's okay to be honest about what's really going. He can see it all anyway. If you've been gone through a broken dream, if you've been in the wilderness, maybe for some time, maybe you've just entered it, you probably know the emotional weight of that phrase, the wilderness. You probably know what I'm talking about. The wilderness is that place between longing and fulfillment. And it's that tired and dry, barren area where you can kind of walk around for years, going round and round in circles and feel like you never enter the promised land of the husband, the child, the dream career, the ministry flourishing, whatever it might be, you never seem to get to the promised land. And it can be a tough place to dwell in the wilderness. Am I speaking to anybody here? Have anybody been here before? Thankfully, I'm not alone. It can be a tough place to dwell. But thank God, there's more to the wilderness than disappointment. A few months after that fateful phone call that changed everything, I went and reread the story I got that language out of. What, what am I talking? Which story am I talking about when I'm talking about this language of the wilderness? Biblically literate people, raise your hands, raise your voices. Thank you. The Exodus, where the children of Israel, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, are taken on a trip through the wilderness to the promised land. And I went and reread that story and I was surprised at the frame that it put around our experience. It didn't answer all the questions by any means but it, it helped to join some dots. And so with the remaining two and a half hours I have left here, um, <laughs> your fault. <laughs> We're gonna, just going just gonna to briefly go through that story and see the joints, little connections that it can make. Now we've got two options to do that. 
we can read the whole of the book of Exodus together and half the book of Numbers. It's an option. Or the whole story is summarized in a few verses in Deuteronomy 8. Which do you choose? Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Deuteronomy 8. The 40 years in the wilderness for the Israelites is over. It's the eve of the Jews walking into the promised land. And Moses gets up and he has a pep talk for them, really. He's going to get up and he's going to say a few things before they walk into this land that's been promised to them for such a long time. He gets up, and I've got it on, on the screen here if you like. Otherwise, yeah, please look along in your, in your own versions and your own translations. Moses gets up and he says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. To humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart. We can say a lot of things about the wilderness, what it is, what it isn't. But that phrase there, to humble you and test you, in order to know what was in your heart. Weigh that for a bit. Let's hover around that. Let it sink in. Can I suggest that first and foremost, the wilderness is a place of revelation. It reveals what is in our hearts. It reveals just what is going on inside us. This is a nice Christian environment, so I'm going to speak in code for a bit and see how clever you are to follow along and understand what I'm talking about. As I mentioned before, we had a period of time there where I had to go and get some tests done. And there came a time for me to provide, let's just call it a sample. Two of you understand what I'm talking about. Would the rest of you like more information? Are you sure? Because I can give it to you, you know? Okay. I had to provide a sample. I had two options. One, I could either duck into the toilet of the RVF clinic to provide that sample, or Merrin and I could arrange what they called a home collection. Four of you are with me this time. Would you like more information? Because I can give it to you if you want. So we had to provide this sample, and afterwards, Merrin and I are in this ludicrous situation where we're holding the specimen jar. Merrin is holding it. She's wrapped it up in a jumper to keep it all nice and warm like a precious... <laughs> little chick and we're sitting opposite the IVF clinic in the car I look at Marin she looks at me I look at her she looks at me I look at her and I say you are taking that in <laughs> and Marin says I'm not taking it in you are taking it in I say I'm not going to take it in she says you take it's yours <laughs> so I'm not going to take it in I'm not going to take it in well you have to take I'm not going to take it in just then a lady walked down the footpath I went and started winding down the window and I said, if you don't take it in, I'm asking her to take it in. <laughs> Merrin took it in. <laughs> you know, and we could laugh that day. We had a good laugh and little did we know all the trials that were about to walk into our lives as a result of actually that test. And friends, I would love to be able to stand here and say that we walked through this with the hearts of saints, with purity, with joy in the Lord. We tried our best to do this. The IVF, 
working through the ethics of that, we tried our best. But it was tough sometimes. And there were times where both of us failed, if you like. And I've got Meryn's permission to read a few things out of her journal where when we were right in the heart of this, remember this is 10 years for us, so towards the end of that 10 years, Meryn was writing things like this. I wish I could trust God again. I wish I could trust there's some grand plan or reason behind him not giving us a child. Have you ever felt that? What can you really trust God for when you ask with all your heart and you're ignored? God feels like an old friend who no longer returns my phone calls. Or maybe God is just mean. See, like the Jews, when the Jews went through the wilderness journey, the Jews never gave up belief in God. It wasn't an option for them. There is a one true God and we're following him. But they did start to question his goodness. And that's common as you go through the wilderness. That you start to wonder, is he really a good father that we were praying, you know, singing before? Is he really good when we're going through those kinds of difficult times? So it was a test for Merrin as to what was going on in her heart and whether she would really trust in this God she couldn't quite understand at this moment. My test was to come in a slightly different way. Marin and I are sitting by Sydney Harbour one day, and it's just a, kind of a couple of weeks before that final embryo and the phone call and everything. We're just talking about what the future might look like, and Marin says, if, if this doesn't work, and if we don't have a family, the thought of life just going on as normal for me is just too hard for me to consider. I said, oh, what do you need, love? Put my arm around her, Sheridan to the rescue. What kind of consolation prize would be good? What, what would you like to do? And she says, well, I'd like to move overseas. Overseas? Yeah, I'd like to start again. Start again. Yeah, I'd like to go to Europe. To Europe? <laughs> because... Here's the clincher. During that 10 years of walking through the wilderness of infertility, that very same 10 years, which Eva started to kindly allude to, was one of immense blessing for me, career-wise and ministry-wise. I had this dream of a nationally networked radio program in Australia that would reach mainstream Australians with the gospel. It wasn't millions, thank you. It would be lovely if it was millions that were reached. <laughs> We didn't reach millions, but we did have 100,000 people on a Sunday night, which in Australian terms on an off-peak radio time slot was particularly good. 50% of those were not Christians. Every Sunday night having Muslims call in, not every Sunday night, but we have Muslims call in and Scientologists call in, have secular folks, New Ages call in, Christians call in, all sorts of conversations as a result of that. And we were seeing fruit out of that. During that same 10 years, had a dream of writing books and it happened and people started buying them. During that same 10 years had a dream of speaking at conferences and that started to happen. And Maren's asking me to give it up, to, to walk away from all of that, to move to another place. You ask any writer, anybody who is in publishing and you will know there's very little chance of getting published in a country where nobody knows who you are. For Marin, it was trust, the test. For me, I wonder if it was a little idol that had crept into my heart, the idol of Christian influence, the dream fulfilled. Here I was speaking to 100,000 people and speaking at Australian Parliament House and things like that. 
and letting go of that influence. We go to Christian conferences and we're always talking about influence and being leaders and everything like that. It's all good, I believe. We're called to be salt and light in the world, just as you are here in the town of Perryvale. But we've got to be so careful that any of those dreams fulfilled, any of the influence we're given, is not turned into a little idol that we hold on to for our own reasons. Are you with me? Get it so far. When we go through the wilderness, the first thing we find is it's a place of revelation. It reveals something about what's going on in our hearts. What might it be revealing for you as you go through your wilderness? Moses had some really interesting things to say at the beginning of Deuteronomy. He said this in chapter 1, In the wilderness you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. And now back to the pep talk, he says, Know in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Father, son, carries, disciplines. Don't miss these words, friends, because they're really significant. You and I, New Testament, 21st century Christians, are so used to the concept of God being our father. This is the very first time in Scripture God is referenced as a father. Very first time. Where did the Jews discover it? In the wilderness. It's a place of revelation, but it's also a place of discovery. It is where they discover God is their father for the very first time. And just as we were singing, the correlation to that, which is I am a child of God. So the Jews have known God as creator, as sustainer, as king, as judge, as ruler. They discover him now as father. It is a profound moment. And I had preached on this. I had taught on this. My goodness, when you go through the wilderness, you have to really know it. And if you don't, you can. Merrin is a very clever person. She is a and you've got to say ooh to this. <laughs> she is a medical statistician. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So Meryn's just started doing a PhD, but basically for the last few years, what she has done to make it really simple, which is an oversimplification, but what she has done is basically take, taken all the data, data, sorry, English. <laughs> of, all, of all words, why do the English follow the Americans on that word? Australians say data. The English and the Americans say data. I'm disappointed in you, I really am. <laughs> she takes the data of all the big pharmaceutical trials, you know, all the big drugs, to make sure that basically, in the end, we can pop that pill into our mouth and we're not going to grow a third arm or something. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of bits of data and bringing it all together and making it meaningful, working out, does the drug actually work? Very oversimplified, isn't that love? It's an oversimplified, yeah. <laughs> you talk to her afterwards about what she actually does. Very, very clever person. The place in the world that kind of needs that kind of people is a place called Switzerland. And so for a while, we thought we were going to be going to Switzerland and maybe for Merrin to get a job in one of the pharmaceutical companies there. And then we decided, well, we discovered, it's a place of discovery. We discovered that the Swiss um, don't like other people. Um, well, that went down like a rock, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's because you're all Swiss, right? Okay. <laughs> Swiss are beautiful people, but if anybody's tried to get a visa, a non-EU person, try to get a visa into Switzerland, you can't. It's very hard to get a job. You've got to have 
the approval from a canton. You can't get a job until you know the canton. You can't get approval from the canton until you've got a job. You just can't do it. So it looked like another dream was going to be broken there. And then Merrin had the opportunity of having an interview with a little university you might have heard of called Oxford University. <laughs> And the night came where it was time for her to have this telephone interview with this panel of big wigs. You know, there's about four or five, I think, on the, on the telephone call. And um, it's a hot Sydney night. She's sweating. Uh, didn't have a hands-free phone. So she's, on the, she's as far as the cord will stretch. She can't reach the window to open it. She's sweating. They're asking her all these questions about parametric sample sizes, which you know about, of course, but you know I don't. And she's just thinking, this is just this dying a thousand deaths. She gets an email a couple of days later saying, Dear Merrin, wonderful to talk to you tonight. We would like to offer you the position of medical statistician at the Centre for Statistics and Medicine at Oxford University. Pretty cool, huh? Cool gig to get. We had never seen Oxford in our plans ever before. It's a place of revelation. It's a place of provision too, the wilderness. And it's a place of discovery. So we go on a trip. We meet the lovely Eva as we're going through Switzerland. We then arrive in Oxford. And the day comes for Meryn's first day at her job. And she dresses up in a new outfit because apparently that's what you have to do if you're going to get a new job. You always buy a new outfit. Us guys have to kind of cotton on to that, you know. It's, oh, just wear the old jeans. I'm happy with it. <laughs> Merrin walks down the, down the stairs and says, how do I look? She's looking great. And I look at her and I say, honey, when those medical statisticians see you today, they are going to spill their weak tea all down their beige cardigans. <laughs> but she's anxious. And I'm anxious. We've come a long way for this not to work, right? <laughs> it's a 24-hour trip on the plane. You try bringing all your worldly belongings with you as well. Three months until we got all the rest of the stuff to arrive in time. Big move. A lot was riding on it. Thankfully, Merrin comes home with a smile on her face. A job at Oxford University is no replacement for a child. But it was the new beginning she needed. Proverbs 13:12. hope deferred makes the heart sick. What's the second part? But a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. And it was the tree of life that she needed. It was the consolation prize. For Merrin, coming to Oxford was like leaving the wilderness and entering the promised land. And for me, coming to Oxford was like leaving the wilderness and entering a new wilderness. <laughs> At that stage, very well-connected people were putting my name forward to the BBC and the BBC weren't returning my phone calls. Uh, I thought I had a winning book project and not one but two publishers turned me down with that. Why? He's Sheridan Boise. We've never heard of him over here. And the months started to roll on and things started to, <laughs> things started to feel pretty bad, I have to say. Again, I would love to tell you, I stood up here with the joy of the Lord and I was going to face every trial and every trial was going to be triumphant. I struggled. I, me, and not as good as you, I struggled and I wrestled. And for a time, I wrestled with a whole heap of things. Now I see it was God doing some purging in me. I wrestled with jealousy for the people who had what I wanted and didn't have. Speak to any childless couple and they've gone through the same thing when they walk past a playground. 
I was wrestling with a sense of insignificance and a little voice that was saying, thousands of people used to listen to you now, Sheridan, and nobody listens to you now. You're spiritually impotent, you're washed up, you're finished, you're over. Wonder whose voice that was, by the way. <laughs> and as the months wore on, these ugly, ugly emotions, ugly feelings went through me. Who are you now, Sheridan? Who are you if nobody ever publishes a book of yours again? Who are you if nobody ever has you on radio? Who are you if nobody ever wants you to speak at their conference anymore? Who are you? So I ask you, friends, who are you? Who are you if you never become a mum or you never become a wife or a husband or whatever it is that your right hand dream is bound up in? Who are you if the career never goes the way that you want it to? Who are you if the career falls when it's going so well now? Who are you? Who are you, Sheridan? Who are you? Listen again to Moses. Know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. That's who you are. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are a child of God. Did you hear the way the Lord just emphasized that song in the worship this morning? I was going, amen, amen, amen because we can preach it and we can teach it like I have. He wants that to go deep, 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 deep. What happens when you go through the wilderness is that all the good but ultimately secondary identities most of us build our lives on, like I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a broadcaster, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a career, you know, whatever my career is, I'm a, all of that gets swept away when you're in the wilderness and you've got to work out, well, what have I got left? That's it. In the wilderness... You discover what's going on in here. It's a place of revelation, and it's a place of true discovery. You discover that you and your dad are family members. One more thing that Moses has to say as he's up there in front of the children of Israel as they're about to walk through the promised land. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. He's bringing you into a good land. It's a place of revelation, it's a place of discovery, and it's also a place of transition. After 40 years in the wilderness, they enter the promised land. Remember Jesus out in the wilderness? How many days was he there? 40 days. What does he do as he comes back out after that? Heads back to Galilee, starts his world-changing mission. And this, friends, can give us great hope when we're going through our own wilderness moments because he does his great work in us and then after the wilderness comes a new beginning. After the wilderness comes a new beginning. You walk into the good land. When we got here, we went and spent a weekend with a couple you may have heard of, Adrian and Bridget Plass. Anybody read any of Adrian Plass's books? Adrian, if you don't know him, um, best-selling Christian author of the UK, wonderful man. When he asks you how you are, he means it. And so when we were coming over, I th think I'd had numerous interviews with him over the, t over the years, and then he asked when we were still in Sydney, we were having an interview, and he asked me off air, how, how are you doing, Sheridan? And it was right at the end, I think it was November of 2010. It was before the phone call, but things were all un unknown. And told him the story, and he said, well, if you ever leave or whatever. If you ever moved to another country, please come and stay with us up in Yorkshire, where they were at the time. We went up, spent a weekend with them. And we're walking through this place called Mullum Cove. And 
Marin and Bridget were walking up ahead. They were kind of walking a bit faster than us, and Adrian and I were kind of walking up the back. And Adrian said, how are you doing now? It's been some months since we'd last spoken. He said, well, how are, you, how are you doing now? I said, well, you know, Adrian, we're doing pretty well, you know? We've been here now. I think it was about six months in the UK by that stage. We're doing pretty well. You know, still a few tears here and there, but, you know, we're doing pretty well. Things are a little bit up in the air for me, but, you know, just trust God with that. I guess, Adrian, we're trying to look at the upside of childlessness. You know, we've got more freedom to travel. We've got more disposable income. We can spend a Saturday morning in the cafe drinking latte after latte, reading page after page of the newspaper. We're trying to focus on that, I guess. And Adrian says, I understand that, but that will only take you so far. He says, Sheridan, think about Jesus hanging on the cross. It's a dark, brutal, barbaric event. And Jesus isn't trying to put a positive spin on it. You can't put a positive spin on the crucifixion. Jesus does something else entirely. I'm all ears now. He says, Sheridan, have you ever thought about how many people Jesus ministered to while he hung on the cross? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you think about it. He ministered to his mother. Remember, there's his mother. John, his friend, is there. Mother, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. He's looking after the, his, his elderly mother. He's looking after his mother and her needs even while he's hanging on the cross. Who else did he minister to, Sheridan? He ministered to the person of the thief on the cross. What did he say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. He ministered to the people who crucified him. He said, Father, forgive them. They what? Don't know what they do. He ministered to the centurion who said, surely this was the son of God. There was some sort of supernatural thing going on there. And Sheridan, he ministered to all of us, forgiving us our sins by dying on the cross, the sacrificial lamb. Sheridan, get this. All of that happens on the cross before things get good at the resurrection. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I often think when I'm going through a tough time, when I'm walking through the wilderness, I think, well, gosh, when we get through this, what a wonderful testimony. When I get through this, oh, great wisdom. You know, it's going to be fantastic, but I really want to get out of the wilderness. Naturally so. But with Jesus, the ministry happens in the crucifixion moment. Adrian said, yes, Sheridan, there'll be some upsides to you being childless, but there'll be some days where it's dark and it's difficult and it's lonely and it's just going to feel unbearable. But out of your suffering will come opportunities to minister to people in ways you otherwise never could. Later that night, we're sitting in his lounge room in front of the fire, sipping port. Now, I know that I've got an Australian accent. But once you've done that, and I've got a British passport, by the way, I am one of you. But even if I wasn't, the very fact that I've sat in a lounge room in front of the fire, sipping port, makes me an honorary Brit anyway, okay? <laughs> Australians just don't do that. We're sitting in front of the fire, sipping port, talking about my struggling writing career. Out of the blue, Adrian says, have you thought about writing your story into the book, into a book? And uh, kind of like Meryn's question in 2000, I kind of go, uh, which story is that? Sheridan, the story you've just spent the last couple of days telling us, the 10 years in the wilderness and everything else that's gone with it. Oh, that? No. No, I haven't thought about writing that into a book. Like a memoir. Yes. No. 
no, Adrian, for a start, I don't want to be known as the infertility guy. That's not the brand I want. And Adrian says, your story isn't about infertility. Your story is about broken dreams and new beginnings. Your story is about holding on to God when you don't know what he's doing. Your story is about taking a step and starting a whole new life and starting a new beginning and everything. I know a whole bunch of people who could need and really enjoy and need to read a story like that. Couldn't sleep that night, <laughs> thinking about the possibility of whether that was something we wanted to do or not. Spoke to Marin. We had a long think and pray about it. Wasn't going to go ahead if less Marin was happy for it to go ahead. Start the new year in 2011, 2012, sitting down at my computer, starting to write some words. And I turn it into a book. It gets rejected by British publishers. Why? Who's Sheridan Voice? <laughs> and then the biggest Christian publisher in the world, an American publisher, God bless the Americans, <laughs> looks beyond the whole fame thing, reads the book and says, we need to do this. And so it comes out, and within days of its release, I start getting emails like this. And three and a half years later, still come most weeks, must be 300 or so of these kinds of emails, these kinds of messages. My son has Asperger's and my marriage is in tatters because of my husband's addiction. All my dreams are gone, but I've just read your book, Resurrection Year, and now I feel I can start again and start finding God again. That's what I want to reach. That's what I want to do. Our child was born stillborn. My husband has just asked for a divorce. Thank you for telling your story with honesty. I'm tired of hearing Christian success stories. We get that a lot. We want to bless God and praise God when he does the miracle. What about the times when he doesn't? What do we do then? We walk through the wilderness with people. I do like this one. I don't often cry when I read, but your book has broken me. I pull beers at the local pub part-time, and a crying bartender doesn't do much for my street cred. <laughs> or this one. I'm crying for the first time in a very long time. Tears of healing. God is working in me through yours and Merrin's story. I'm starting to see the dawn of new things. The wilderness is a place of revelation. It's a place of discovery. We find out who we really are. Besides all the secondary identities we build our lives on, it's a place of transition. It's a place where God leads you into a new mission. It could also be a place of bountiful, wonderful provision for you. But it's a place where God leads you into a new period and season of ministry and service to others with an anointing and a power that you didn't have before because you've been able to recycle this. That's what the word redeem means, by the way. Recycle, turning it into something new and turning it into a beauty that is a kind of beauty you couldn't have had if everything had gone right from the beginning. Are you guys going to sing one more song? Well, if you guys want to get ready, would you like to stand with me? Five years later, Merrin and I are in a good place. Um, and we're in a much, much better place when it comes to the child thing, just to finish the story. The way I say it to people is, you know, there was a wound and the wound is healed, but there's still a scar there and occasionally people will bump into us and we'll be reminded that we've got a scar. But we're, we're in a good place and things are different now when it comes to radio and things like that, but I never want to lose those lessons of being in the wilderness.
So let's just wait before the Lord. Just say, ask God by your Holy Spirit that you would work in our lives and in our hearts now and you would raise to the surface the things that you would like to skim off and take away from the surface to purify my brothers and sisters this morning. And I ask, Lord, that you would recalibrate our hearts and our lives to be closer and more like you. And so just hold out that, that fulfilled dream in your left hand before, before the Lord. Hold it out before him. My fulfilled dream came very close to being an idol that started to be something I gained my sense of identity and sense of security and sense of significance from. Now, for you, you it might be a dream career, it might be a family, it might be a marriage, it might be uh, artwork, it might be something special that you have that has come to fruition in your life. I'm going to ask you to hold that before the Lord and give it back to him. Isaac was a fulfilled dream for Abraham. He wanted a child. And what did God call him to do? Hand him over. Hard story to make sense of. Isaac was a dream fulfilled, and God said, give him back to me. So will you give those fulfilled dreams, a handful of dreams, back to God? When you're ready to do that, hold out your right hand. With all of those unfulfilled, and they may well come to pass, but maybe some of those broken dreams that are there as well. Would you hold that out? Isaac was the symbol of an unfulfilled dream. God had told Abraham he wouldn't just have one child, he would be the father of many nations. And God was saying, hand him over to me. Hand him back. This is the beginning of that dream crumbling if God actually takes him. That dream's not going to come to fruition at all. God says, give him to me. Give the broken, the unfulfilled dream to me so it is mine. So hold out those unfulfilled and those broken dreams and give them back to him. we lift up all the dreams, God, the fulfilled, the unfulfilled, the broken, the ones we're not too sure about, the ones that have just kind of been settling on our hearts for a while. We don't even know if they're from us or from you or whatever, but Lord, we lift them up to you, handfuls of dreams, and we give them back to you. We can trust you with these ones. We can trust you with the fulfilled. We can trust you with the unfulfilled, and we can trust you even though we don't always understand you with the broken dreams as well. And we trust you with them now. Thank you, Lord, that you're doing your work in us. You've revealed who we are through the wilderness process. You want to shape us to become more like Jesus through that. You've revealed yourself as the good father 